you have the absolute right to believe this, to express this and to apply it to your life. You do not have the right to insist I believe it too. Is it authoritarian, would you say? Yes, it's um, it's a kind of thought control. I mean, it, an employer at the moment, of course, we they would have absolute right to say you must not say racist things or discriminate by race when you are at work. They should not have the right to say, you need to believe in invisible systems of power known as whiteness and your own socialized racism into this system. That's not something that they have the right to insist people believe. This one is going to alienate some people, the woke among you, but this is a safe space for open discussion. So whether you love it or hate it, I hope it's entertaining and informative. And if you're triggered, I don't give a fig. Just kidding. Get in touch and we can discuss. And please do pass the pod to friends so it can grow a little. Today I speak with Helen Pluckrose, author of the new book Cynical Theories, and an anti-woke scholar who was part of a team that composed fake papers to highlight poor scholarship across academic fields. They created these bogus academic papers on things like men can cure their transphobia by inserting something up their back passage, and that Mein Kampf be translated using feminist language. Many of these hoax papers were indeed published by leading journals, leaving them red-faced, both metaphorically and politically. Communism joke there. In the wake of the JK Rowling trans debate and the hijacking of the Black Lives Matter movement by anti-Zionist organisations, Helen talks to me about the dangers of woke culture and the hierarchy it creates between different groups. She says the woke or social justice system places trans and certain races at the top, with Jews, like myself, firmly at the bottom, just below women, gay men and lesbians, who are increasingly getting a rough time. In the past few days, we've had UK grime music star Wiley tweeting incessantly about how the Jews are slippery and lots of other horrible stuff. I very nearly had him on this podcast and was even waiting in the Zoom call, but he didn't show up. Before we start, I'd just like to apologise to my dad, Neil Gold, for swearing on the last two podcasts. He gets very upset about it, and by listening, you've all been complicit in my microaggressions. You fu- Why do I feel so angry when I look at my Instagram feed? (laughs) Are you getting a lot of uh, critical social justice ideas in there? Yeah, I am. Yeah. And I think this is, um, this has got a bigger um, sort of public pull than I think a lot of more reasonable people on the left are willing to admit. They they tend to say, it's just a few, it's a few mad activists, it's a few bad papers, but this really is quite a culturally dominant um, ideology now and I, I think we, we can't keep letting them tell us it's not. <laughs> mm. Where does it come from? That comes from the spirit of of the new of the new left of the um, of the sort of 60s and 70s left-wing activists. We've got this radical activist spirit which has united with these fairly aimless postmodern ideas to create a user-friendly and quite simple form of activism. What I had recently, so a friend of mine who's very woke on on Twitter, they liked my podcast and they said, oh, you need to get, why aren't you getting given your own show on BBC and all of that? And I said, well, the issue is uh, at the moment, I've been told anyway by producers that they, you know, being white and male makes it very hard to to put me as like an on-screen presenter. And this person then said to me, hmm, well, you you sound a bit racist. 
And I said, how do I, I'm just telling you what happened. I didn't, I didn't even give an opinion about it. I just said, I'm, I said, I'm very frustrated by it. And I didn't say I, whether I agree, maybe I agree with this, that, that sort of positive discrimination, or maybe I don't, but that's all I said. Yeah. And then they said, uh, because they were American, they said, uh, Andrew, do you, you realize there is a genocide going on in the States right now? There is a Holocaust happening, yeah. referring to Black Lives Matter. Yeah. And I just didn't know what to say. I was so taken aback. So I just went, oh, okay. I, and I just sort of got a bit, because we were on the phone, and I just got a bit sort of apologetic and passive because that's how I am. And I spent weeks thinking, what should I, what should I have said to that? What, what should I have said to that? When you get someone who's responding not to what you actually said, but to a position they perceive you as taking due to the way you're speaking about something... Hmm. then you have got somebody who has embedded themselves within this kind of discourse analysis. So you might not actually have said straight white men are being discriminated against and it's terrible, but hmm. that's what he will read um, with the addition of um, you entirely refusing to recognise that it's not white people who are mostly affected by racism and um, you know wanting to preserve your own privilege and all the rest of it. So that is one of the most frustrating things at the moment James Lindsay and I who I've written the book with yeah he he calls in like I think he's right it's a sort of a late stage of postmodernism where we've gone into an age of narratives where people care much less about what is true and much more about the the narrative that they can spin around their own side and this has obviously been helped by uh, the Trump administration and that rise of of populism and um, suspicion of expertise on the right but it's also driven and, and explicitly justified by the um, postmodern ideas on the left so for people who are presumably like you definitely like me, who want other people to respond to what they're actually saying mm. and not what discourses of power they perceive you to be speaking into, it's extremely frustrating. <laughs> so many presumptions, aren't there? Do you think it also, I, just my own theory, just, you know, completely anecdotal because I don't have any, you know, but uh, is it is it wrapped around this idea of everybody wanting to be the hero of their own story, the way our brains work, we want to become the hero. So this particular person I'm talking about, you know, hasn't achieved as much as they wanted to, but they're able to create a story in their minds where they're a hero fighting for something and, and I, the person talking to them very quickly becomes the villain. I think there there's that element going on. I, I think this is much more, though, to do with wanting to have a place within an ethical framework, um, wanting things to be simpler. We're in the middle of something that really is quite messy at the moment. And then we've got social media, which is just sort of throwing up all kinds of different ideas all at the same time. So these social justice ideas are really deceptively simple and they serve a lot of the same social and psychological needs as um, religious faith does because yeah. it gives you a way to understand the world. It gives you a concept of yourself as someone who is a sinner but has recognised that and is trying to do better. There's a great sense of worth in that feeling. Yeah, piousness. Yes, exactly. And yeah. um, I, I think that's what we're seeing. Is it piety or piousness? I, I think either would work. Oh. <laughs> yes, I, I do think there's a, um, there's a religious type of social um, and psychological thing going on. And I'm not saying that to kind of d diminish it, to say, well, religion is un unevidence, so it's nonsense, and this is exactly the same kind of thing, so we can dismiss it. I think we need to actually pay attention to social and psychological needs that humans have. 
And I think social justice ideas are serving them in the same way that religions serve them. I think the argument often from sort of the my side might be, oh, look at communist whatever. Is there any real dangers that can come from this kind of social justice and wokeness? I think there certainly is. I don't think it's communism. A lot of the people who are leading this movement at the moment are really quite wealthy and in elite universities. They're not um, at all concerned with um, having a revolution that will give the proletariat the control of the means of production. I used to think social justice, postmodern ideas couldn't really become totalitarian because they're so fragmented and contradictory. But what we've seen happen in the last year is a hierarchy form of marginalised identities. Right. So um, Jews have really been kicked out almost entirely. Women are no longer um, seen as uh, an oppressed class on their own. We've got the white yeah. women's here, the Karen phenomenon. Yeah. Gay men have failed to be consistently um, woke, so they are also... I noticed that, yeah. Yeah, lesbians um, are suspected of being TERFs, and so they're, um, they have to do a lot of pro-trans uh, identity talking if they want to yeah. be considered there at all. So at the moment, what we are seeing... Um, with the whole sort of um, stack of uh, marginalised identities is uh, two, which are currently emerging at the top of the pile, and that's um, race and uh, gender identity. Hmm. So at the moment, we've got the trans activists who are very much um, dominant. You can be cancelled very easily for doing something that's transphobic. And we've got the critical race theorists, a particular kind of critical race theorists, those focused on microaggressions, safe spaces, uh, discourses, attitudes, bias. Yeah. So these are uncomfortably coexisting at the moment. But I think what we're going to see in the next, I think we're starting to see it now, is that the race um, issue is going to win out. And I think that there'll be some talk, you know, uh, black trans women. Uh, the most marginalised people at all, of all, and we should just support and listen to them at all times. But really, the whole racial uh, element of identity is is going to win out. And this, I think, is because it's coming from America, because America needs to have a reckoning about its racial history yeah. in a different sense than, than we do. Our, our history, of course, has got um, much more of an issue of colonialism, but the sure. people that the UK, the Brits have exploited are generally not in the same country. So in America, there's a really volatile situation, which I think I think the critical race theory is clearly exacerbating it and making it a lot worse at the moment. But it sounds like it's a, f a fashion thing. If you look at the statistics of who, the, the, the main activists, the white fragility, white privilege, we are looking very much at rich, middle-aged white women. And we look at who is supporting them. There are a lot more white people who believe um, fully in the social justice conception of the world than there are black Americans. It's quite interesting because on the far right, where you've got the genuinely racist ideas, and the far left, where you've got these quite dubious anti-racist ideas, they're both dominated by white people. Hmm. So actual racial minorities tend to be somewhere they tend to collect much more around the sort of reasonable anti-racist side. We don't hear so much about cultural appropriation and microaggressions from the average black person as you do from yeah. the white liberal elite student or 
Would that be why so, the Labour Party did so badly, despite all the Corbyn stuff and everyone was excited about Corbyn? Uh, was it that their issues around their focus on trans and Palestine didn't really appeal to the working class voter? I, I think that that's certainly a large element of it. I mean, James and I, we've, we've written this about, you know, him about the Democrats and me about Labour, that this isn't the way to... Um, this isn't the focus. The left should be focused on the working class, even if a lot of them are straight white men. But I don't think we can tell too much um, from the last election because so much of it seems to have been dominated by Brexit, which is obviously a different yeah. issue altogether. That doesn't map neatly onto any sort of social justice ideas at all. That's true. <laughs> That's true. Um, you are the editor of, is it Aereo or Ario? Aereo. Area. What does Aereo mean? Aereo is um, short for Areopagitica, which was Milton's <laughs> um, defense of free speech. Okay. And um, yeah, he he was a, a sort of nonconformist Christian, obviously, and he yeah. wrote this. Um, it was always intended to be read, though, but it's called his speech. Mm. And he defended the right of individuals to be wrong and to argue for what they believe to be true. I mean, he didn't go as far as um, including Catholics or atheists, obviously, but it was progressive for its yeah. time. I hated Milton at university. <laughs> I just couldn't. I couldn't get past the first page of, of Paradise Lost. But no, that, um, that's. I didn't enjoy that either. Although I have studied it and written about it, but um, Areopagitica <laughs> is much better. Okay, it, um, you can relate much more to it. More accessible today. I like particularly that he argues that it's better to be wrong. Um, honestly, than to be right just by taking on what you've been told. Hmm. And I thought that's, um, <laughs> there's more honesty in that. So I, I liked that idea of his. Um, tell me about the grievance studies uh, affairs and what you, I, I find it fascinating what you guys did. Uh, do you want to explain what you what you did with the, I think it was 20 academic papers, was it? Yeah, we, we um, wanted to, I mean, first of all, we, we we tried some overt hoaxes which didn't work and then we went much more into the ideas the concepts the theories the language we drew on a lot of the leading theorists and the most ridiculous ideas we could find hmm. and brought them all together to argue for something that was should have been clearly um both unsubstantiated by any evidence and um deeply unethical and um in addition to this we also um produced data which was either actually impossible or implausible and then drew um, conclusions that weren't warranted by it. So this was really, um, they were all very much ideologically and theoretically motivated. They should have been clearly worthless, even to somebody who believed in those ideas themselves. Yeah. They would have said, no, you haven't, you haven't made your case here. But that didn't happen. Well, only once. One person pointed out our data didn't work, and that was great. Otherwise, they've it, it. Yeah, it mostly got accepted, and we had six which we retired, and another five that we were hopeful of, and seven that were accepted. That's insane. So these were seven academic studies that had no founding or basis, and they were very biased. Is it hard in general to get? Is what I, what I want to ask is is, is that is, is that proof that uh, professors or, or pu publishers are, are biased towards uh, grievance issues, or is it? Would you be able to do it the, from the other side? Would you be able to? Is it just that they're not thorough enough in their checking 
either side? Or do you think this is proof that they are biased towards grievance studies? I don't think it's proof that they are necessarily biased towards it, but I think it's proof that this is a kind of theoretical approach which is acceptable um, mm. when it shouldn't be. Yeah. So it's as though if we had something like the Wakefield paper in um, a medical journal which claimed that vaccines were linked to autism, this isn't proof that medical journals um, accept, I don't want this kind of paper, but it's a proof that there's a problem. They yeah. somehow allowed this in, but these are getting in when they shouldn't be. How much of a problem is this? I, I think it's quite a large one, although there is still good scholarship going on. Yeah. It's a problem when it's accompanied by stuff which doesn't have any worth, which isn't based on evidence, which isn't argued with reason, and which isn't advocating anything ethical. What was the story, um, the theory you were most shocked that was accepted and published? Um, I think the, the, the silliest one, the one that we thought never would, was the one that's got everybody's attention because it was so silly. It was when we claimed that um, we'd... Um, looked at 10,000 dog genitals in a in a in three parks in one town and that um, our observations of how humans interacted with their dogs taught us that um, dog parks are rape condoning spaces then suddenly jump to nightclubs and somehow this proves that they are too and that we should train men like dogs and this was all analyzed through um, black feminist criminology which is clearly irrelevant the data was impossible it didn't say what we said it said and that was accepted anyway, and even um, given an award of being in a special edition. Wow. So that was worrying. But I think more worrying for me, and this is the one that doesn't get very much attention at all because it isn't funny, um, but was the one that we had accepted by Hypatia, which essentially argued that there is no legitimate way to criticise social justice ideas, that only marginalised groups can legitimately use humour, that um, white male or straight people can't legitimately use it, it's just bullying, and um, that any kind of criticism or mockery of social justice ideas is a failure to engage and should be punished. So that seemed like a very extreme argument, and we thought if they accept this one, um, then we really do have something to worry about. They are literally um, agreeing that it is, there is no legitimate criticism of this kind of scholarship. And that was the one they accepted fastest of all. Nine days they accepted it, a couple of revisions, and it was in. How, how did you suggest that they be punished? Um, we didn't actually go that far, but we said, I mean, this was, um, we, we claimed that academic hoaxes um, like ours, like um, Alan Sockles, were a, an attempt to preserve privilege and bully everybody else and that this should carry academic penalties. So we're clearly implying that people should lose their jobs, they should be suspended, they should have their doctorate revoked or any of these kinds of sanctions. Right. It should just not be allowable. I can imagine that last one you said. I mean, my Instagram, and I'm, I'm risking wrath here because that's why I post these things a lot in my Instagram thing. But they would, my Instagram followers and people I follow would love this. They would love that. They would be sharing that in a second. The idea that you can't criticize uh, woke, and if you if you are, especially if you are white or if you are privileged in some way, like they are, of course, as well. But that's that's amazing. Are you worried that you'll never be? published again after what's happened or that you'll be sort of cancelled and does cancel culture exist i think cancel culture certainly does exist i think i am fairly immune to it because i i'm not employed by anybody else i can say what i what i want i've got some um support from ethical 
um, liberals so I can deal with the amount of abuse and um, nastiness that gets thrown at me, I'm not really in a very vulnerable position here. Mm. There's also a certain privilege in being uh, a woman because I'm, I'm, I can't be accused of, um, well, I can be accused of misogyny, but, um, but not of... Uh, they, they can't, there's a limit to the number of false accusations that can be made about sure. me. So I have a little bit more strength yeah. um, to come from than, than men do. But cancel culture is, is certainly true. I've had to set up a Discord server now because the number of emails that I was getting, there were dozens coming into me every day, hundreds of, um, of DMs a day from people saying, I've got to... Um, affirm these social justice beliefs at work or I'm going to get fired. Um, there's uh, new training courses in which people are expected to read certain very ideologically motivated texts. I mean, Robin D'Angelo is key among these. Mm. You might know her book, White Fragility, sold out. Okay, yeah. To accept D'Angelo's idea, you have to confess to being racist. You have to acknowledge it. You have to commit to trying to do better. And you have to accept that any kind of disagreement at all, even if it just takes the form of not saying anything or going away, is just evidence that you are too fragile to confront your own racism. It's, um, it's a thoroughly um, Kafka trapping, you know, do you know that, that fallacy the, um, where any denial of the accusation is right. used as evidence that the accusation is true? Catch-22 would be my yes, version yes. of it, the Joseph Heller. <laughs> That's, it sounds so religious the way you put it. It's actually scary, isn't it? Yeah. You, you know what my concern is? Just by talking about this, and I guess you must have been concerned about this, just by talking about this idea, you get picked up, I presume, by people who are sort of right-wing and want to use your ideas uh, of free speech or whatever to just be horrible racists. Is that an issue as well? Yes, that's um, that's a problem. I, literally before I, I came to this meeting, I just tweeted, I seem to have in the last few weeks picked up a few right-wingers who are equally tribal, um, dishonest, self-victimising as the worst of the um, social justice activists. There's, they're almost mirroring each other. People who are actually anti-equality or anti-intellectual who could use these ideas to attack the university or to attack solid scholarship into issues of um, human rights and we have said that this does not justify any such broad attack most scholarship is still good most work into um, race gender sexuality issues is still important we still need this we've done a defense of the university we've argued um, for a liberalism over identity politics we've pointed out that the right-wing ideas are, are also illiberal. There are certainly some um, liberals on the conservative side as well, and I can respect them, but there's, there's an illiberalism coming at us from both sides. Our manifesto against the enemies of modernity looks at the pre-modernists on the right, the populists who are suspicious of science, experts, reason, and they want to go back to some kind of idyllic um, state of nature that never really existed. And then there are the postmodernists, and they are suspicious of modernity as well, because they think this is where oppressive um, forces have all gathered in the West to oppress everybody else. So, yes, there's, there's always that risk, but it doesn't last very long. I occasionally pick up some right-wingers, then within a few days or a couple of weeks they're usually yelling at me and then um unfollowing me on twitter so uh, yeah is that yeah. is that um 
sort of a bad thing because then you're losing followers. How do you feel when you lose a follower who's a horrible person? <laughs> I prefer this because what I found recently, my following has, has jumped up a bit. When I had 30,000 followers, I was really proud that I could quote tweet someone in disagreement and be completely sure that none of my followers would be abusive to them. In the last few weeks, I have found now that some of my followers will be abusive and I will block them if they do that. But it also is likely to make me unable to quote tweet people. Yeah. I still think it's a good situation to be in because I've only got like a thousand followers, you know, and it's um, it's so hard to build them up. So I'd take at the moment, I would even take the bad ones, I think. But that's just mm. selling selling out, I think. I think it depends what you want to do. I It was when I got to, to 10,000 that it got really difficult. Before that, I had a nice selection of people with different ideas and we'd have proper conversations. And then as it got over 10,000, it... It, there was always someone who was going to miss the point, someone who was going to answer something yeah. I wasn't saying, someone who was going to say something that didn't even um, relate or make any sense. And this is infuriating to me. I seem to lack the ability to just ignore the people who aren't making valuable points. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched or tweeted. Now imagine all of that data being crawled through, collected and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Did you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell your data? The worst part is they don't have to tell you who they're selling it to or get your consent. One of these data points is your IP address. Data harvesters use your IP to uniquely identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, my connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and my IP address is masked. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it more difficult for third parties to identify me and harvest my data. And the best part is how easy ExpressVPN is to use. No matter what device you're on, phone, laptop or smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button to get protected. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com heretics and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash heretics. Go to expressvpn.com slash heretics to learn more. Hey, it's Andrew. If you're enjoying Heretics, there's another podcast I want to recommend to you, especially if climate change, global conflicts and an upcoming election are making you feel like we're on the brink of disaster. What Could Go Right is hosted by Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Varvalukas. On What Could Go Right, the hosts sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair that we hear so often. Instead, they look back at how far society has come and look forward at what it will take to achieve an even brighter future. Is progress on the way? They may not have all the answers, but on What Could Go Right, they're asking the key questions. Tune in to hear interviews with upcoming guests like writer Coleman Hughes, CNN host Fareed Zakaria, and economist 
Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. This sort of position, uh, philosophical position, I suppose, and maybe political that you find yourself in, and I probably, I would align myself, I'd like to think. And we, we have this idea that the people who are very left, very right, very woke, very fascist, very whatever, that they have some sort of cognitive bias, I suppose. Mm. Is it possible that we are the ones that have that? I, I think it's possible that we all have that. I, you know, sometimes people accuse me of having an ideological commitment as though I don't realise this, as though I haven't actually written a manifesto setting it all out with yeah. um, with Jim. But yeah, I will, I can only argue for um, liberalism in the traditional sense, in the sense of the focus on the individual and on the universal, our shared humanity, and each person being able to reach their full potential, regardless of um, their social status, their economic status, their race, their gender, their sexuality. This is, I think, the most reliable system, because even though it isn't perfect, and some of the Marxists and some of the social justice activists have correctly pointed out that liberalism doesn't move very fast. It reforms things slowly, and it's how we've got to where we are, but it, it doesn't move fast. It doesn't always pick up um, issues of racism or issue or economic focus. So the Marxists would focus much more on class. Social justice would focus much more on, um, on race or whatever. But I think when you've got a liberal framework, which then actually incorporates some of the good stuff from both the economic left and the identitarian left to ensure that it doesn't get stuck at this smallest level, the individual, and this largest level, the universal, and miss a lot in the middle, then I think you've got the strongest framework you've had. You can get when what you've got with the social justice people, unfortunately, they're all about identity and groups. There is almost no recognition of our shared humanity, but we can empathise across groups that we have as the same feelings that we can understand how other people feel. And there's very little understanding that anybody can be an individual and disagree yeah. or, you know, because one of the most frustrating things is when they will say to you, listen to black people listen to trans women yeah. and what they mean of course is listen to ones who agree with yeah. us and anybody who has a different opinion has obviously just not become woke enough and internalized yeah. the aggressive narrative like candace owens yes exactly we can't listen to both kimberley crenshaw and um, candace owens and um, reconcile yeah. that and they don't try the difference yeah. with liberals is that we're able to be open about that. I am open that I agree with and support the liberals in every um, demographic. I don't have to pretend that I am supporting the authentic voice of any identity group. I live in Germany, and uh, so I mean, I'm talking to you from Berlin, and here it is illegal to deny the Holocaust. What are your thoughts on that? I I would disagree with that. I can certainly understand why Germans um, would want to do that. I think that they'd obviously feel that this was a great um, disrespect to Jews and other persecuted groups and a denial of um, the history. But I think as a general liberal principle, these ideas need to be expressed. Now, the, the very best book on this um, liberal principle is Jonathan Rausch's Kindly Inquisitors. And he provides a very, very convincing argument 
that it is by being able to deny the Holocaust, by being able to say that homosexuality is sinful, that these ideas essentially died in the West. The great sort of move away from anti-Semitism, unfortunately we're seeing a return to it right now, but, um, and the move away from homophobia, it happened remarkably quickly and it happened because of an exchange of ideas. People were allowed to express bad ideas and other people were allowed to point out why they were bad. I get very worried if we lose the ability to argue with bad ideas. I think that's what's holding liberals back at the moment. We haven't had to defend liberalism for so long. A lot of people don't know how to do it. Yeah, I think what winds me up the most is a lot of the the woke people we're talking about, uh, who are very uh, you know middle upper class and and educated and everything. They're reading Orwell at university. They're reading you know the, the books. That, I mean, I studied English literature, so just book after book was about this idea. And then you see something like uh, J.K. Rowling, you know, at Hachette, there was this whole thing that they were going to uh, not publish her book. A lot of people there, and I thought, how can you be a book publisher? How can you go into the book publishing pr- pr- profession? and not consider what that means to not publish someone's book a children's book which not because you disagree with the book but because they said something you know i don't know how i I don't know i love jk rowling so i you know i get myself in a lot of trouble because i disagree with both the gender critical feminists and um with the social justice trans activists you're the worst worst of both (laughs) yes (laughs) so i um the gender critical feminists tend to believe that um Uh, Gender is completely a a social construct. There aren't any um, psychological, cognitive or behavioural differences between men and women. The the psychological differences between men and women were made up in order to keep women subservient. Judith Butler, is that right? Both groups essentially believe that... um, that gender is a social construct. They're both social okay. constructivists. I think we've got J.K. Rowling. Her the way she talks and the way she writes shows somebody who is mostly liberal, but who has taken on a, to- a type of feminism which is um, gender critical rather than intersectional or trans. I, I feel like she had to sort of she had to sort of be on one side because otherwise she had nothing to say coming back. Mm. It was like well, oh, she- but I'm a victim in another way. So that's why, you know, I was attacked in some ways and I'm of, she had to come back with something like that. Like, oh, you think you're being woke, but here's my theory. I feel like, I don't know. I just get the impression from her. She just seems quite chilled and liberal, but I'm a fan. So yeah. I'm completely biased. <laughs> yeah, I, I was surprised um, to see her using so much of the gender critical mm. um, stuff because it has that um, that radical thing. You, you yeah. don't get that from um from you know the Harry Potter when um, you know when Hermione says do you think women are stupid and Harry says how could I have gone to school with you for all those years and thought that yeah you know this is uh, this isn't a radical feminist uh, no I don't think approach. she is this is a, a liberal thing yeah so but no I, I think she's she's taken on some of the gender critical stuff and I think she took a stand on their behalf because she felt it was really important and. I, you know, I don't have to agree with her totally, but I think she's mostly liberal and I'm I'm in support of her being able to say this. We do actually need people to talk about what an unex- uncritical acceptance of trans women as women in every situation is likely to do to women's sports, women's safety and women's spaces. So we need that conversation to be happening. Of course, I then annoy the gender critical feminists because they are, you really have to be all or nothing. And I 
thinks that trans people, trans women are much more oppressed than um, women like me, women who are born women. And I will call people by the pronouns that they prefer. And I will support um, causes for trans people. And this yeah. makes them regard me as a kind of traitor because they think you can only support one. This isn't, this isn't true. I can yeah. certainly support women who want to protect their sports and their spaces and without without being evil to trans people <laughs> is isn't that isn't that i mean i think you've just sort of summed up exactly how a lot of us are feeling which is like the world is really complicated you don't have to be just on one side it's much better if we can understand a little bit of everything whether it's trans rights uh which i think we we can both agree with and I, even jk rowling i think would say is that they should have rights and that uh, they are oppressed and this and that and disagree with the the free speech element that we're not allowed to speak and discuss um whether israel palestine or any of those issues why why can't we go okay i get this but what about that and what about this and it's actually driving me mad yes (laughs) Yes, it is it's um it, it really feels as though we're having to explain quite basic elements of um, liberalism and i'm yeah. talking about liberalism on that that broadest sense i think the majority of us are still our assumptions and our default status is still liberal just let people do what they want unless it's hurting someone else this postmodern idea of getting at biases detecting them in language um trying to trying to you know equalize people um from the inside really addressing how they think and feel I think the mess that we're in at the moment is, is that general society is seeing social justice um, scholarship and activism as a neutral and positive continuation of Mm. civil rights, rather than a particular political and ideological position. You have the absolute right to believe this, to express this and to apply it to your life. You do not have the right to insist I believe it too. Is it authoritarian, would you say? Yes, it's um, it's a kind of thought control. I mean, it, it, an employer at the moment, of course, we they would have absolute right to say, you must not say racist things or discriminate by race when you are at work. They should not have the right to say, you need to believe in invisible systems of power known as whiteness and your own socialised racism into this system. That's not something that they have the right to insist people believe. I mentioned communism before, and I think you were saying it's not like that, but it, it sort of, I guess, the, it bring, conjures up images of the Soviets in one's mind a little bit. Yeah, in, in that sense, I think it certainly is the same. When you've got the ideological fervor, when you're so sure that the way you see the world is the right way and the world will be a much better place if everybody else sees it that way, then yes, that's, um, that's very, very similar. Communism in that sense worked very much like um, a religious ideology as well so we can compare that to um to things like the inquisition and um sort of even uh, protestant um protestantism yeah. in the early stages when they were they were interrogating people as to how they thought hmm. and what they believed and you had to believe the right thing and this is i think much more intuitive to humans than allowing a plurality and differences to exist do you think the woke people might be a bit of a loud minority? Because again, we've seen, at least in the UK, the way that people vote 
and it really felt like Corbyn might have a chance the way that this loud minority was going on and they just completely flummoxed. So are we? Is, are the rest of us the silent majority? I think so. And this this is, um, again, our manifesto. This is what we argued. We argued that the majority does not believe either this uh, populist pre-modern narrative or this um, post-modern one. So the best studies, I don't think there is one in the UK, but only one in 12 people believes um, the progressive activist um, stance in the US. I, I took that test and it called me a progressive activist. Uh-huh. So there's probably less than one in 12 people who genuinely know and believe in social justice ideas. But it has got this um, power as um, an institutionalised guardian of morality and justice and people are not arguing with it in any institution which is being taken over by this there's probably several people who are worried about that and want it not to happen but none of them are saying so so they don't know each other exist yeah it feels lonely (laughs) it feels lonely and that's that's why I wanted to talk about it because you do feel lonely with this view and actually you're not an island it's all you know and and I guess when I released this podcast whether you know instagram and twitter and stuff my, but I, I talk of instagram because that's more sort of friends i've known uh, rather than twitter with people i don't really know um and there will be some people who might be vocally against it but i guess i have to imagine that the vast majority will be going yeah maybe angrily nodding like i do when i listen to you on youtube i'm sort of angrily bitterly nodding along like yes that's right you know mm. Hopefully some people will be doing that. I hope so. I mean, this is what we, James and I particularly, we're really trying to do is embolden people to kind of push back from an ethical and principled standpoint. You know, the the only people you can intimidate into being quiet are the people who are genuinely afraid of being called racist or sexist. We know racism is horrible. We know sexism is horrible. We don't want those labels attached to us because it affects our sense of ourselves as a good person. Yeah. So yeah. we need liberals to be able to say, I agree with your goals, but not with your methods. And this mm. is what I stand for. And this is what I think will work. This is what, when that friend of mine called me racist, because my mind was going at a million miles an hour trying to think of ways that I might somehow come out of this not looking even worse. I was I was trying to think, okay, what are the right, there must be some pattern of words somewhere that I can use that will convince this person that they are wrong and that um, that they don't care more than I do when a black person gets their neck squashed and killed. Uh, it's horrific to watch for all of us. And the the idea that they care more than we do is awful the arrogance in that that drives me mad um and i couldn't think of any combo of words that would do that so all i could do was go like oh i'm sorry and then that person since then sort of i guess feels like they've won they might go to their other friends and go well i actually confronted a racist today this is what i'm imagining afterwards um and then sending me lists of ways i can educate myself afterwards yeah christ yeah it really is it's it's a kind of ideological capture and trying to get through to people. I had a, a long thread on what um, the liberal concept of colorblindness is and how it isn't the same thing as ignoring racism. And even though I'd spent several tweets um, explaining this, somebody came up and up. Oh, you still just want to pretend racism doesn't exist. You're still mm. this, this imperialist, it's your white supremacist. And there isn't anything you can do. But I think as well that they do a lot of the time they do know that there are other attitudes out there. So Robin D'Angelo, for example, she says that white liberals, white progressives are the worst, um, that, that she, she considers them worse than um, 
you know, the, the far right even, wow. because we seem to want the same things, but we have a different conception of the world. Right. And this is what I'm seeing a lot as well. People put a lot of effort into attacking me. Um, and I think it is because I can be more com convincing to other people who also dislike racism. This is why I am seen as a greater threat, perhaps, than somebody who is clearly racist, that nobody with any ethics at all wants to um, be associated yeah. with. But somebody like me who is saying racism is bad. Racism mostly affects people who are not white. We haven't entirely got rid of systemic racism. We need to keep addressing this. Social justice is not the right way to do that. Yeah. That is what could actually draw more people away from social justice ideas and is therefore seen as more of a threat. I suppose the reverse of that, it's why I get, again, as a, a Jewish person, I get a lot more offended uh, when there's left-wing anti-Semitism than right-wing because right-wing, I just think you are just, who are you? You're just not even a real person, you know, but they shout stuff on YouTube or whatever. I get it a lot just because of my surname and uh, which doesn't even mean anything. And it's just, I just think you're not even a real person. When it's a left-wing person, I think you could be a friend of mine and you could be in my social group and you're thinking these subtly different things that are quite dangerous. The last chapter of our book you might like because mm -hmm. it, it um, explicitly compares this liberal and the social justice Okay. I've got quite a lot of um, quotations from recent books written on liberalism. And it really is the case that for liberals, we share the aims very much often with social justice activists, but we might share methods more with centre-rightists, because okay. at the moment, people defending um, the individual, individual responsibility, freedom of speech, are much stronger on the centre-right. Unfortunately, they're not <laughs> as strong on the centre left, yeah. which is getting kind of swayed into this um, this idea. There's a lot of slippery slope arguments going on, where if you say, well, I think people should be able to say that they believe um, woman is a biological category. We don't have to agree with them, but that's a position they should be allowed to take. Then if you're saying this, then you are in support of creating an atmosphere in which trans women get murdered or commit suicide. <laughs> So it's not as though it's, it's getting extremely difficult to take this ground where you say, I want to support trans people who are vulnerable. I yeah. don't want this to involve the silencing of people who have different ideas of gender and sex that that shouldn't be allowed. <laughs> well, tell me about what's what is the name of your book and when is it out? Because I, I couldn't get hold of it yet. It's not out, is it? It is. Well, no, it's not out, but it's um, it's available to pre-order. It's called Cynical Theories has the subtitle of how scholar activists made everything about race, uh, gender and identity and how that harms everybody. So that is out and people can, well, it's coming out and you can pre-order that now yeah. and don't show anyone you're reading it because they'll burn you in <laughs> the book and cancel you. We've already got a load of negative reviews on Goodreads and nobody's even read it yet. <laughs> and yeah. there's been several academics come down against what they assume it's going to say. So how has this, this, this centrist rationalist view become like the heresy of today? Mm, I think it is because it's a, a greater threat. Is there anything good that comes from wokeness? Um, there's certainly, there's certainly um, elements of truth in there. I, I wrote a piece that you can find called What Social Justice Gets Right, mm -hmm. in which I argue that they're not wrong to say that people, that language has power, that culture has power, that people can have biases that they're not 
aware of, there's a kernel of truth in almost everything. So with the concept of white fragility, it is almost certainly true that white people do feel uncomfortable discussing racism. They feel complicit in it and guilty about it. And that could lead some of us to not wanting to talk about problems. So yeah. there's always that kernel of truth, but it's where they go from that. And what I would argue is that we still have the best method possible with liberalism, with universalism, with individualism, yeah. with objecting to racism as an attitude individuals can choose to uphold or reject. Okay. That is the way to get rid of racism, to make it something that if you hold racist ideas, if you express them, the majority of people will not consider you someone worthy of respect. They will consider you to be unethical. They will not they yeah. will not respect you greatly. So this, I think, is the way forwards with racism, whereas the social justice idea, where all white people are racist by default, and the better people are the ones who admit it and try and unpick it, I think that's entirely counter productive if everyone is racist no one is there isn't a way for people to avoid yeah. being racist and there's pressure on people to pretend to be racist so i'm i i really think that we're going we are seeing a surge of racial awareness yeah. that is counterproductive coming directly from social justice i think it's a good feeling the whole social justice it makes you feel good because I, I mean i remember when I was 16 or whatever, and you learn that history history at school and you're learning about uh, the Holocaust or you're learning about slavery. And I used to daydream in my class that I was back in the 1800s or whatever, or the 70s or 1930s, 40s. Um, and I was I would stand up and go, no, this is wrong, what everyone's doing. And it's almost it was almost frustrating to me that where I looked around, there there wasn't, not not that it doesn't exist, but most of my friends and everything, they mm. didn't have this kind of thing. And you almost want to invent it where it isn't because then you can be that hero. Um, I wonder so, yeah. if sometimes with um, a certain type of male feminist, mm. and this is um, something I've got quite indignant about because quite often on Twitter, I mean, that they've all given up on me now and we've moved much more into race anyway, but for a while I would frequently get a male feminist telling me that they needed to be quiet and amplify my voice because otherwise nobody would listen to me mm. and that society generally regarded me as less competent, less capable, uh, less knowledgeable and reasonable than men. And this hasn't been my experience at all. Yeah. Um, often the person saying this has perhaps a hundred followers and doesn't publish anything anywhere. And yeah. um, so I find that very frustrating because it, it almost feels, which I know is uncharitable, but it almost feels as though they need to believe that they have this elevated status mm. in a sort of the similar way to where white supremacists often need to believe that their skin color makes them superior because they don't have any yeah. good um, or exceptional qualities of their own. Yeah. So yeah. I I think there there can be an element of that, but generally we should assume that everybody is actually well-intentioned and trying sure. to make the world a better place. Well, it's well-intentioned, but it's a subconscious thing, isn't it? And oh, Possibly, man. but I'm dubious of that as well. In the same way oh, really? that I have to criticise um, the idea of whiteness, that we're all subconsciously racist, Right. I yeah, think. Yeah. We should, even if we're fairly sure we know what's going on in someone's head, we should pay attention to what they're actually saying rather than what we think they could be thinking.
Some of you will have been nodding your heads viciously along with what Helen was saying. Some will have gotten lost in the scholarship theory stuff. I found myself flitting between the two states of being. An important message that mustn't be lost in all of this anti-woke stuff is that racism is bad. Black Lives Matter is an important and necessary movement, and we as a society need to do all we can to ensure things be fair and equal. That means listening to minority voices, even if they don't correspond with the general woke consensus. That said, the religious side of woke is something I'm averse to. I don't feel like washing my sins, nor do I feel a desire to look for the worst in others and out them for their thoughts. Please remember to review the podcast. Unless it's a bad review, then do forget. Uh, And I read every one. And tell your friends to pass this around. Next week isn't 100% confirmed, but I think it'll be with Josh Friend, the lead singer of dubstep band Modestep. He's an old friend of mine. He's immensely talented and a huge online star, and he'll have some truly bonkers things to say from inside the music industry. See you next week.